I do uh, want to talk about grace this morning. And, uh, you know, I would define grace as unmerited favor or unconditional love, with the emphasis, emphasis being on unmerited and unconditional. You know, God's grace flows in unmerited fashion and unconditional fashion. And that's a very, very hard concept for us to wrap our heads around. Actually, it's a, it's a concept that we don't have too much problem with in our heads, but it's a problem getting it all the way to the heart. Uh, I want to start with a verse, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. It's one that, that you've heard many times, uh, but it's a great starting point. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You know, grace is a cornerstone of the Christian faith. You can call it a foundation. You can call it an anchor. uh, But it is a central tenet to the spiritual walk and our connection and walk with God. Yeah, it's, it's one of those ideas, one of those concepts, one of those words that we very easily wrap our heads around and, and know that we believe in it and we, we know that we accept it and we know that we need it. You know, God's grace is, uh, is, is imperative for us to, uh, to uh, depend on, to know that we are right with him. We rely on his grace uh, because it's not something we can earn. You know, and yet getting it all the way from our head to our hearts, internalizing it, seems to be, at least for me and I think for many of us, one of the most difficult things that we do. You know, and it, the way it manifests itself is this. If, you know, without really having taken grace all the way down into my heart, there's still that element of fear, that concern about how God sees me that concern about whether or not I'm really right with him, he appreciates me, you know, he accepts me the way I am. You know, all of these are indicators that I'm still struggling with the idea of grace and getting it from my head to my heart. You know, it also manifests itself in the inability to forgive myself or a difficulty in forgiving myself and forgiving others. Um, you know, if, uh, if I'm having trouble experiencing and really believing from my heart in grace, then it's hard for me to forgive myself and it's hard for me to forgive others. You know, and there's, there's, there's a lot of reasons for this. Uh, the world that we live in does not operate on a state of grace. It operates on a state of performance. Our ego uh, does not operate in a state of grace. Our ego wants to be self-sufficient and capable. It wants to believe that it's worthy, uh, that it's in charge, that it's in control, uh, that it's doing a fine job. And so we battle against so many different factors when it comes to really taking grace uh, and moving it from our heads to our hearts. You know, in this battle this struggle to, uh, to really take grace all the way from our head to our hearts is not a new one. Paul struggled with it as well. And I want to read three passages from Paul's letters. Uh, the first two 
One is from Romans, one is from 2 Corinthians. The first two were written very early in Paul's ministry. And as you listen to these verses, you'll hear Paul starting the verse, starting the passage of Scripture by struggling with some aspect of his life that he doesn't deem worthy. And he always comes back around, you know, at the very end, almost reminding himself, you know, that God is still with him, that God's grace is still there. The third passage is from 1 Timothy, which is at the very end of Paul's ministry. And in it, I think you hear a different flavor. I hear a very different flavor. Uh, it's it's a recognition that um, our worthiness with God does not depend on behavior or circumstances uh, because we're under a state of grace. So take a listen to these passages. First one is Romans seven, uh, chapter seven, verse eighteen through twenty-five. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work in me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes. And the second passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. And then finally, from 1 Timothy 1, this verse 15 through 17, this is one of my favorite passages, and it goes like this. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst, but For that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So I don't know if you've really noticed, but you know, in those first two passages, you know, Paul starts by agonizing over his inability to behave in a way he deems acceptable. He's, he's agonizing over the thorn in the flesh, and he, he keeps coming back around to reminding himself and reminding us that God is always there, that God loves him regardless, that he is worthy in God's eyes regardless. It's only in the final verse that Paul's able to celebrate the fact 
that he was one of the worst of sinners because that's actually something that God could use to encourage others to find him. In other words, it kind of comes back around to all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. You know, I don't know if you've noticed this. Uh, you know, in life, we go through a lot of difficulties. Uh, I'm a recovering alcoholic. You know, people struggle with a lot of different things. You know, folks go through divorce. Folks go through bankruptcies. Folks go through uh, very severe men- or physical challenges and mental challenges. And at the time of going through these challenges, it's very easy to feel like a failure. It's very easy to feel like uh, we're separated, that, uh, that, that our life has been destroyed, that, uh, that we have no value. It's very easy to get down on ourselves and, uh, and, and really feel that sense of disconnect. But if we actually move through these things, if we actually find the pathway through and find God as we walk through these things, it's amazing what happens as we come out the other side. Not only do we find a new connection with our God, but we also often find the chance for a ministry that never would have been there had we not gone through that struggle or difficulty in the first place. You know, as a recovering alcoholic, one of the very first things that, uh, or the, the people that I wanted to hear the most from, you know, were the people who had gone before me, the people who had struggled the same way I had, the people who had found a path through. And as I continued my own journey, it opened up a ministry that I never would have had before. It gave me a chance to serve people, to, uh, to be a beacon or a light or an encouragement to people I never would have been able to touch before had I not been through that experience. And, you know, to me, that's the same thing that Paul is saying in that passage from 1 Timothy, you know, is that even though he started out his journey, you know, as a person that was persecuting Christians, putting them in jail, killing them, stoning them, you know, taking their houses from them, even though he started in that place, God was able to use it for good. And it's so difficult for us to see this because we're so judgmental of ourselves and we're so much in that place of feeling guilty about the things that we don't do correctly that we lose sight of the fact that we have a God of grace and mercy that is able to use anything for good if we are called, if we follow him through it, if we find him through it, and come out the other side with him. The challenge really is moving this concept of grace from our head to our hearts. You know, and you, you may have heard that old saying that uh, the longest distance in the world is the 13 inches from the head to the heart. Now, I don't know if you've heard that, but uh, it really is the truth. One of the hardest things that we do is move our belief system, move our ideas, what we know that we believe, what we know to be true. You know, in this case, God's grace, God's unconditional love, his unmerited favor. Move that concept, that understanding, that idea from a mental understanding 
all the way down to our heart to a place where we accept it fully, to where it comes up from the subconscious uh, to our reality, where we're able to live our life in that state. You know, I mentioned earlier that everything in life goes against this concept. The world is based on performance. It's based on uh, quid pro quo. It's based on uh, doing things correctly and doing things rightly. And so it, it's, it's very hard for us to really truly accept that we have a God of mercy and grace uh, that accepts us totally and sees the worth and value in us um, regardless. You know, one of the places that I most often see my struggle with the concept is in my ability to forgive myself. Um, about 13 years ago, I began this journey uh, to recovery, uh, to sobriety. And, you know, it was really amazing it was it probably within the first two to three weeks of starting this journey, I really knew that God forgave me. I really knew that uh, he accepted me. I really knew that I was right with him again, uh, that our relationship was intact again. I knew that within the first two to three weeks of the journey. And yet I can tell you, I was four to five months into the journey before I began to forgive myself. And this is, this is the challenge that we're facing. Um, you know, I knew that God forgave me. I knew that I was in right relationship with him. And yet I could not forgive myself. So, so what is the path? What is, uh, how do we get to this place of understanding, accepting, living God's grace? Getting it to a point within our lives to where it's no longer a question, it's no longer just a mental belief, but actually becomes part of our life. I believe the first step is learning to, ex to accept our humanity. <laughs> How good are we at that? Can we accept the fact that we're human, that we make mistakes? You know, it wasn't that long, or actually probably a year or so ago, I was up here and I started the sermon with, do you believe that sin is a critical and even necessary component of the spiritual walk. Now that sounds kind of bizarre. That's uh, not something that we would normally say from the pulpit, that sin is a necessary and critical part of the spiritual walk. And yet, how do we find grace if we never fail? How do we stay in a state of grace if we're always behaving correctly? And how many of us are able to behave correctly 100% of the time anyway? Um, you know, I, I want to go back to the Bible again. I want to go back to Paul again. Paul is hilarious. I, you know, I just love this guy. Paul and Peter remind me of each other. Uh, they are both so vibrant, so alive, so in your face. They, they just seem to say anything and everything before they even think about it. And so 
you know, I can, I can really relate to them. Um, but listen to, to what he has to say here. It's about grace. And uh, it comes from the book of Romans. And, you know, it's, it's kind of funny because going to the book of Romans for a passage on grace almost seems uh, antithetical. Um, I don't know how many of you have read through the book of Romans, but especially if you read through it in the New International Version or the New American Standard Version, the book of Romans can sound kind of harsh, kind of judgmental, kind of do or die, kind of behave or be damned. Uh, It's a very in-your-face, cut-and-dried kind of book. But I want to read this passage from the Message Translation. And... If you haven't done so, uh, if, if Romans is a book that you've kind of shied away from because of its tone and, and because of some of the things it says, try reading it from the message translation. It takes on an entirely different flavor. And this passage comes from the end of Romans 5 and through the very first uh, couple of verses of Romans chapter 6. And it says, All that passing laws against sin did was produce more lawbreakers. But sin didn't and doesn't have a chance in competition with the aggressive forgiveness we call grace. The aggressive forgiveness we call grace. When it's sin versus grace, grace wins hands down. All sin can do is threaten us with death, and that's the end of it. Grace because God is putting everything together again through the Messiah, invites us into life. Grace invites us into life, a life that goes on and on and on, world without end. So what do we do? Keep on sinning so that God can keep on forgiving? I should hope not. If we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house there? You know, I mentioned earlier the trouble I had forgiving myself in my journey to recovery, you know, and it, it really followed the exact pattern I said, you know, in the first couple of weeks, I totally knew that God forgave me, accepted me, loved me, and yet it was legitimately four months later uh, before I began to forgive myself. Um, I find that really bizarre, and I find that really telling. I can accept the fact that the God of the universe forgives me. I can accept the fact that the God of the universe loves me exactly the way I am, forgives me for what I've done, and yet I can't forgive myself. There's something very wrong with that. Um, our inability to forgive ourselves, our, inab- our, our, our struggle to forgive ourselves keeps us from this state of grace. And I would tell you this, it's grace that leads to peace. You know, the Bible talks about finding God's peace over and over and over. Matter of fact, in Philippians uh, chapter 4, it says we're to find the peace that passes all understanding. That only comes when we actively enter into and, and believe, truly believe from our heart in God's grace. As long as grace is a mental concept, we are still struggling to believe that God can find us worthy or love us exactly where we are and how we are. 
So we understand the concept of grace. We embrace the concept of grace. We love the concept of grace. And yet it remains mostly in our heads and very little in our hearts. Dave has said so often from up here, we are only as forgiven as we allow ourselves to be. And that's the truth. You know, we are only as forgiven as we allow ourselves to be. God's grace is there. God's forgiveness is there. God is always there with open arms. You know, it's us that makes the determination whether or not to accept that grace, to accept that forgiveness, and move on. So that's accepting our humanity, accepting the fact that we are worthy in spite of the fact that we can't do life perfectly. Um, The second thing I would say about the path to accepting grace is that grace and humility go hand in hand. Um, It's hard to do one without the other. As uh, As we move further into God's grace, it should take us to a path of more humility. And as we live more in humility, it should allow us to accept more and more of God's grace. Um, I used to spend a lot of time, you know, telling myself, I'm really not that bad a person. You know, um, there's a lot of people a whole lot worse than I am. Um, I'm, I'm really pretty good. You know, and that was, that was just me trying to bolster my ego and trying to not have to rely on God's grace. One of the most beautiful things about being an alcoholic was I lost the ability to tell myself I'm not that bad. Um, and it was truly amazing. It, uh, it took me and my God to a completely different place. As I went through that valley and came back out the other side, you know, I found that I was able to meet my God at a completely different point in my life, realizing that, you know, I, I am not that good. Um, and yet God was still waiting for me with open arms. He was still there. He was still in complete love with me. He still found me worthy. And it opened up a whole new aspect of my relationship with him. It's why we hear so many alcoholics say, being an alcoholic is the best thing that ever happened to me. You know, but where I was, I was finally the prodigal son returning home. I was out of excuses. I was out of false pride. I was just broken and humbled and amazed to find that my God was still there waiting for me. You know, one of the reasons Jesus was so hard on the Pharisees is because their approach to spirituality was an ego-based approach. Um, You know, they felt like they were better than others. And probably the best example of this is when Jesus talked about the Pharisee and the tax collector praying on the side of the road. The Pharisee was standing on the street corner, you know, with raised arms saying, thank you, God, that I am not a sinner like that tax collector over there. And the tax collector was on his knees, humbling himself before God and seeking God's grace. And Jesus said, you know, one of them, one of them went home today right with God. And it was the tax collector. 
you know, because the tax collector was truly seeking God's grace and God's understanding. You know, the Pharisee was trying to uh, impress God with how good he was. Um, you know, and this is not about us walking around acting all pitiful and, and uh, um, exclaiming how bad we are. This is just about recognizing and accepting the reality that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, you know, we want to move into a place where we accept our humanity. We want to move into a place where we find a little more humility um, in the way that we approach others and approach life. I want to read a paragraph. Um, This is a synopsis of Brene Brown's TED Talk on vulnerability. Um, in it, she's talking about relationship and she's talking about connection with others. But as you listen to the words, I want you to hear them not only as a reflection of connection with others, but also with connection with God. And by the way, if you haven't, uh, if you haven't heard this TED talk, uh, Brene Brown's TED Talk on vulnerability is one of the most amazing things you'll ever listen to. Look it up on the internet and listen to the whole thing. But here's, here's a condensed version of it. I started with connection because by the time you're a social worker for 10 years, what you realize is that connection is why we're here. It's what gives purpose and meaning to our lives. And this is what it's all about, the ability to feel connected is why we're here. But very quickly, I ran into this unnamed thing that absolutely unraveled connection in a way I didn't understand or had never seen. It turned out to be shame. And shame is really easily understood as the fear of disconnection. Is there something about me that if other people know or see that I won't be worthy of connection? It's universal. We all have it. This, I'm not good enough, rich enough, beautiful enough, smart enough, promoted enough. It was excruciating vulnerability. This idea of, in order for connection to happen, we have to allow ourselves to be seen, really seen. Here's what I can tell you that it boils down to, and this may be one of the most important things that I've ever learned in the decade of doing this research, and that is, what shame is, and how it works. If I roughly look at the people I interviewed and divided them into people who really have a sense of worthiness, that's what this comes down to, a sense of worthiness, who have a strong sense of love and belonging, and folks who struggle for it, folks who are always wondering if they're good enough, there was only one variable that separated them. People who have a strong sense of love and belonging believe they're worthy of love and belonging. That's it. They believe they're worthy. The only thing that keeps us out of connection is our fear that we're not worthy of connection. Think of that passage in terms of our relationship with God. The only thing that keeps us out of our connection is our fear that we're not worthy of connection. What do these people have in common? What they had in common was a sense of courage. These folks had, very simply, the courage to be imperfect. 
They were willing to let go of who they thought they should be in order to be who they were. You absolutely have to do that for connection. The other thing they had in common was this. They fully embraced vulnerability. They believed that what made them vulnerable made them beautiful. They didn't talk about vulnerability being comfortable, nor did they talk about it being really excruciating. They just talked about it being necessary. They talked about the willingness to say, I love you first. The willingness to do something where there are no guarantees. The willingness to breathe through waiting for the doctor to call after your mammogram. They were willing to invest in a relationship that may or may not work out. They thought this was fundamental. You know, it truly is shame that limits our ability to accept God's grace. It keeps us disconnected from his peace. And it's, it's what we struggle with to see ourselves as worthy. The big question is, can we see that we are worthy in spite of the fact that we aren't perfect? How do we come to that point where we see and believe and know that we are worthy in God's eyes in spite of the fact that we aren't perfect? To accept God's grace is to live more humbly, and to live more humbly allows us to live more in grace. It's a spiral staircase leading to the way of Christ. So what do, with this, what do we do with this grace once we've found it? Yeah, I think it's very common for us as Christians to view our relationship with God as a singular thing, uh, as one relationship. We seek to grow that connection through prayer, through Bible study, uh, through quiet time in the mornings. And, yeah, I know this is where my journey started was, you know, I felt like in order to become more connected with him, it was up to me to build that one relationship, to strengthen that one relationship. As I've walked this path, I've come to believe that we really can't separate our, our relationship with God from our relationship with ourself and others. Um, and here's what I mean by that. In God, we have the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Richard Rohr calls it the divine dance, the three functioning as one, each of them feeding each other, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, being as one, acting as one, seeing as each other as one, behaving as one. You know, Jesus over and over said, I only do the things I see my Father doing, and I only do what's pleasing to him. You know, they were three and they were one. You and I have been given our own trinity. And Jesus made this very clear when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. God, others, self is our trinity. How do we come to the point where we do our trinity the way Father, Son, and Holy Spirit do their trinity, where we see each other as one, where we act as one, where we value and respect each other as one. And let me tell you, I think the hardest piece of that trinity to do this in is in our relationship with ourselves. 
I find that it's much easier for me to treat God and others well and to respect them well, to speak well to them, than it is for me to respect me well and treat me well. That's the breakdown in my trinity. You know, for you it might be different, but our goal, our purpose, our reason for being here is to engage in our trinity the same way that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit engage in their trinity. Um, There's a passage in Colossians 3, and I think it, it probably does the best possible job of encapsulating and describing this path to grace that we're called on and what it's designed to do in our life. Um, I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. It's Colossians 3, verse 12 through 17. Listen to these verses and just hear how they play out because they take us on a journey. Um, The verses really play out what it looks like not only when we accept God's grace, but when we allow it to pass through us and move on to others. So here it is from Colossians 3. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. You know, we've been shown the way, we've been exampled the way, through Jesus. He showed us the example. He gave us the story of the prodigal son to show that this way of grace is God the Father's way as well as his own way. You and I are called to be a city on a hill. We're called to be a lamp on a lampstand. We're called to be an attraction point to God. We're called to live in such a way that people see us and want what we have want that different place of connection, that different place of relationship with God. So I want to close by reading a final scripture. Uh, It comes from Galatians 5, and it's commonly referred to as the fruits of the Spirit. As you hear these words, consider two things. First of all, each of the words coming out of this scripture, and these are the fruits of the Spirit, which means This is what comes out of our lives when the Holy Spirit fills our lives. Consider that each of these words are relationship words. They speak to how we treat ourselves and others. And secondly, and I kind of alluded to this, 
Consider them in light of all three of the relationships that we are called to do, our relationship with God, our relationship with others, and our relationship with ourselves. So as you hear the words from this passage, as you hear these relationship words, realize that they're not just speaking to our relationship with God. They're not just speaking in one direction. They're speaking as to how we do all of our relationships with God, with others, and especially with ourselves. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. You know, in today's world, we see very little grace. All of us, everybody on the face of the planet, has very hard and fast opinions and beliefs about very many different things. I don't know how much time you spend on Facebook. I hope not much. But uh, if you do... It seems to be a litany of beliefs and opinions. And you know what? Well, actually, first of all, you know, probably the top three are religion, politics, and COVID-19. Everybody has very hard and fast opinions, especially right now, about those three things. And you know what? There is nothing at all wrong with having hard and fast opinions. There is also nothing at all wrong with advocating what your beliefs are, what your opinions are. These, uh, I think it's the appropriate way to go through life, to chase and understand what we believe, what we, what we really know to be true for ourselves. But can we do this in a way that preserves relationship? Can we do this in a way that doesn't demean and dehumanize the people who feel differently than we do? Can we do this in a way that allows us to still have a good relationship with someone even when they're coming from a very different place than we are? So my prayer for you as you go through this week is that you have the opportunity to engage in relationship or conversation with someone who feels very differently than you do. That you have the opportunity to actually engage in a discussion or a conversation with someone that sees things from a very different point of view and at the end of that conversation still have the relationship be as healthy and as open and as loving as it was before you started. That is grace. That's what's been extended to us by our Father, and that's what we're called to extend to others. Let's pray. Father, thank you that our worth before you is not contingent upon our perfection. Thank you that you love us with a love that we can't understand, that you see us as worthy in spite of the fact that we struggled 
to do things exactly according to your plan. Thank you that our worth before you was in place before we were ever born and cannot be changed. That you love us as your children, we are your children, and always will be your children. Help us to take that from our head all the way to our hearts and live it every day with ourselves, with others, and with you. We thank you, we love you, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. If you're here, let's stand, and we'll close out with the Lord's Prayer.